Turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 41. Uh, Psalm 41, if you have one of our black Bibles on either side of the room, uh, it's on page 494. If you have your own Bible, you can just basically drop it in your lap and it'll probably flop open to the Psalms if it hits the middle somewhere. And then you can find Psalm 41 as you get there. If you have one of our Bibles, you're welcome to keep that uh, and, and use that, not just on Sunday mornings, but we want to encourage you to use that throughout the week, and not just by yourself, but with others. It's a great idea to get involved in one of our community groups. Bring that Bible with you and, uh, and join us as we uh, dig in even more so to the Word of God, helping each other connect the realities of the gospel to the realities of our lives. Uh, last week, we started a series that's going to take us through several different psalms between now and Easter Sunday. I'm calling this series Resurrecting Hope from trouble to triumph with the Christ of the Psalms. It's a long title, okay? But it, but it talks about, it, it helps us see what we're doing here as we explore these Psalms together. Last week, we also talked about how the word Christ is not actually Jesus' last name, but it's a title that's given to him. The English word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos uh, and the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is Messiah, Okay? All of that means the anointed one. This is what we need to think about when we hear the word Christ, when we hear the word Messiah. We need to think about God's anointed one. And that applied first and foremost to God's king over Israel and, and, and then over uh, uh, the, the priests and the prophets. They were also anointed ones as well. But when we think about it this morning in terms of this psalm, we're going to think of God's anointed one as his king. David, who wrote this psalm, was a Christ, lowercase c, okay? He was anointed by God to be the king of Israel, and while David sat on the throne, God made this covenant promise to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, that after David died, God would make one of David's descendants sit on the throne forever as the eternal king, as, as the anointed one, Right? These 150 psalms that we have in our Bibles are referred to collectively as the Psalter. That's what we would call this whole book. And the Psalter was arranged by an editor or a group of editors who were concerned less with chronology and more with theology. These psalms were written over a number of, uh, by a number of different authors over a span of about a thousand years. That's, that's the time frame we're looking at here in these psalms, but the editors arranged these psalms together in, in this order that we have them during a time uh, after the Babylonian exile when the, the people of, Jerusalem, or, uh, of Israel were starting to return to Jerusalem. The temple was being rebuilt, but it, it was still sort of in shambles, and, and the most importantly, there was no king on the throne. No king on the throne. It was a time when God's covenant promise to David was still left Unfulfilled. Now, the editors of the, the uh, Psalter arranged it in such a way that it makes the, the, or takes the reader on this heart-engaging journey from lament to praise alongside God's capital A anointed one, the Christ, capital C, as he waits for, God's, uh, for God to fulfill his uh, covenant promise. It also takes us on the journey of God's lowercase a anointed one. Lowercase c, Christ. We're going to see that as we look at David this morning. 
In a time when all hope in God's covenant promise seemed lost, this Psalter was put together by those who wanted to resurrect that hope in God's people and tell them to hold on, hold on, because God is faithful. Now, sometimes we lose sight of the new covenant promises that God has made to us, don't we? We start to lose hope in, in these glorious gospel realities. I just read 1 Peter 1. That, those are beautiful gospel realities, aren't they? And yet even Peter acknowledges, man, this is hard. This life is hard. You go through trials. You don't see Jesus, and yet you love him, and you're just waiting for him. We lose hope sometimes, even though Peter says we have a living hope. We lose hope in these glorious gospel realities because the not-so-glorious realities of our lives tend to overwhelm our soul. Didn't we sing about that this, this morning? When the dark of night overwhelms my soul and consumes our minds, they trouble us. And as God's people, sometimes our own hope feels lost or dead and it needs to be resurrected. What better place for us to spend as we trod forward to the resurrection day, Easter Sunday, than right here in these Psalms where the people of God are trotting forward looking for the anointed one to come. This Psalter is full of gospel reminders designed to move our hearts to prayer and worship centered on God and his anointed one, his Christ. And we know as believers that Jesus is the Christ, capital C, that the Psalms ultimately point us to. And they draw us into the sorrows and the joys that he experienced on his way to fulfilling God's covenant promise and securing this throne forever. And as the Psalms do that, then they, they give us Voice. They, they voice our own sorrows and our own joys that we experience as we wait for our forever king to fulfill all of God's covenant promises and complete his forever kingdom. Aren't you thankful that God has given us words to express the things that we feel? We don't have to try to put that in, into uh, phrases and sentences on our own. It's hard sometimes to describe how you feel, isn't it? Last week, we talked about how Psalms 1 and 2 serve as a framework through which we are to view the rest of the Psalter. So if you haven't read those yet, I would encourage you to go back and do that this week because every, every Psalm that we look at from here needs to be seen through the lens of Psalm 1 and 2. Together, they give us this portrait of the anointed one of God who is this ideal human being, which we saw in Psalm 1 last week, and the ideal king, which we saw when we went, back, or went through Psalm 2 about a year ago. And so, so again, as we look through all of these other psalms, we need to have Psalm 1 and 2 in mind. Those words need to be echoing in our minds and hearts as we, uh, as we read through anything else in this Psalter. And we're going to hear those echoes, excuse me, this morning in Psalm 41. The Psalter is divided for us into five sections called books. Okay, book one, book two, book three, you get it. And over the next five Sundays, we're going to look at the last psalm in each section, in each book. And this is going to help us understand not only the flow of each of the five sections individually, but the Psalter as a whole. And each one of these book-ending psalms also concludes with a doxology that stirs the reader toward increased hope in God and his covenant promises. So the psalm that we're looking at this morning, Psalm 41, is the conclusion of book one book one of the Psalms. 
Now, almost every psalm in book one is written by King David. Sometimes this is referred to as the Davidic Psalter, just that section itself. Who, and, and he was held up in the Old Testament as a righteous man and Israel's greatest king. If anyone was the anointed one in the Old Testament, it was David. But in book one, David takes us through many of his own griefs and hardships that he experienced while he sat on his throne. And so the prevailing mood of book one is one of lament. Lament. Now, Psalm 41 is a psalm of lament. Psalms of lament focus on the problem at hand. They're almost consumed by it because it's hard to see anything else. And yet in the midst of those problems, in that lament, the psalmist cry out to God for help in the midst of pain. In this psalm, we're going to hear King David cry out to God for help as he's overwhelmed with anguish from every angle. This psalm isn't going to just let us listen to David's lament from afar. We're not standing far off this morning. The psalm is actually going to draw us up to his bedside and hear it right from his own mouth. And we get an up close and personal with the suffering of God's anointed one. So I want to read it. It's not a very long psalm, and then I want to pray for the Lord's help, and then we'll dig in together. It says, for the choir director, a psalm of David, happy is the one who is considerate of the poor. The Lord will save him in the day of adversity. The Lord will keep him and preserve him. He will be blessed in the land. You will not give him over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him on his sickbed. You will heal him on the bed where he lies. I said, Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak maliciously about me. When will he die and be forgotten? When one of them comes to visit, he speaks deceitfully. He stores up evil in his heart and he goes out and talks. All who hate me whisper together about me. They plan to harm me. Something awful has overwhelmed him and he won't rise again from where he lies. Even my friend in whom I have trusted One who ate my bread has raised his heel against me. But you, Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up. Then I will repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy does not shout in triumph over me. You supported me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Father, this is your word, and we pray that by your spirit, you would instruct our hearts this morning, draw us into the glory of Christ. Let us behold this king who sits on the throne, even now, as we reflect on a king who is sick in bed, tired of all the things that he's going through. We pray that Jesus himself would be glorified, and that together we would... uh, we would glory in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, something to remember about the Psalms is that they're not primarily meant to instruct our minds, even though we can learn a great deal from them. It's not like there's nothing here for us to to process and, and learn, right? What they're meant to do, though, they're designed to tug at our heartstrings, This morning, we're going to stand together at David's bedside and hear the groanings of a broken man. We have to ask, why should David's suffering matter to us? 
After all, he's not our king, right? And he's been dead for almost 3,000 years. So how is this supposed to then tug at our heartstrings? Well, let's walk up to his bedside and find out, shall we? Shouldn't be hard for us to imagine. There's a lot of sickness going around right now. Look at verses 1 through 3. Happy is the one who is considerate of the poor. The Lord will save him in a day of adversity. The Lord will keep him and preserve him, and he will be blessed in the land. You will not give him over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him on his sickbed. You will heal him on the bed where he lies. Well, now that doesn't actually really sound like lament, does it? I mean, the first word there is happy. Right off the bat, though, we hear language that echoes Psalm chapter 1 which we heard last week. You remember Psalm 1 1 through 3? How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. And he's like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in season or in its season and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. In a sense, we could summarize those opening verses of Psalm 1 this way. Happy is the one who loves God. And in a sense, we could summarize the opening verses of Psalm 41 this way. Happy is the one who loves others. Love God and love others. That ought to sound familiar to us, right? There's blessing in that. And that is what this word happy means. We could translate it as blessed. It conveys this lasting satisfaction of experiencing God's favor. Here, this blessing is linked to the one who is considerate of the poor in verse 1. Now, the poor here aren't just those who don't have much money, although that's applicable. The term here refers to the helpless, the, the needy, the weak. One study Bible notes it this way. It says, The way that a society treats its marginalized members is a measure of that society's moral compass. Now, that statement right there has some significant implications for our own society right now, doesn't it? For the Israelites, it was the role of the entire society to care for the poor. Why? Because that was a reflection of God himself. They were his people. But for the king himself, he had a special responsibility to provide for these poor, needy, and helpless, and to protect them. As God's anointed one, he was to set the moral compass for the rest of society. To be considerate of the poor here means more than simply to keep them in mind. The sense here is that you're up close, paying attention to them, and waiting on them as they have need. That is reflective of a God who cares. Proverbs 29, 14 says, a king who judges the poor with fairness, his throne will be established forever. Isn't that interesting? As King David is laid up in his own sickbed, he's pointing to that hope right here. He's remembering God's covenant promise because David has been considerate of the helpless and needy. David trusts that the Lord will be considerate of him now that he is the one who is helpless and needy. The Lord will save him in the day of adversity. The Lord will keep him and preserve him in the land. The Lord will not give him over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him and heal him on his sickbed. In short, the Lord will bless him. 
David will be happy. And his throne will be established forever. God will protect and provide for his anointed one who protects and provides for the poor. Happy is the one who is considerate of the poor. But it's hard to be happy in that promise when you don't feel God's protection or provision, right? Now David begins to lament over all of these promises, or promises, problems that he's facing. So let's keep going. Verse 4. I said, Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. Now, the Bible makes it very clear, and we need to understand this, that not all suffering is directly tied to uh, sin. Not all suffering is, is a result directly of sin. But David seems to acknowledge that here, that his sickness has, uh, uh, has, is a consequence of some sin that he has committed against the Lord. In the last four Psalms of book one, we hear David confessing sin. It's, it's ramping up as this, this book one closes uh, we don't know what his particular sin is in this case, but, but in verse 4, David recalls how he sought the Lord's forgiveness for it, and he feels lament over it. His desires not only for the Lord to heal him in the bed where he lies physically, but also for, to heal him uh, of what lies in his own heart. David prayed, heal me, and that phrase can be translated to say, heal my inner being. Heal my inner being. David's sin made him helpless. It made him needy, and not only physically, but also spiritually, and he petitioned the Lord to consider the poor state of this helpless man. Consider his condition and respond with grace. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I have sinned against you. Have you ever felt sick over your own sin like David does here? Maybe you've felt the physical toll before I would think certainly that all of us have felt the spiritual toll but it's not just David's own sin and sickness that are causing anguish though we got to keep reading look at verse 5 through 8 my enemies speak maliciously about me when will he die and be forgotten they say when one of them comes to visit he speaks deceitfully he stores up evil in his heart <coughs> excuse me he goes out and talks all who hate me whisper together about me. <clears throat> they plan to harm me. Something awful has overwhelmed him, and he won't rise again from where he lies, they say. Now, that language, if you read Psalm 1 and 2 this week, that language ought to be familiar to you as well, because it echoes Psalm 2 too. That says, the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire against the Lord and his anointed one. David's enemies are not considerate of him in his poor state. They're trying to take advantage of it. In verse 5, they're conspiring behind his back. But we get pulled into their conversation as we hear them maliciously ask, listen, when will he die and be forgotten? Literally, when will he die and his name die with him? If you're following along with the, with the covenant promise, this is a mockery of the promise that God made to David to say, I will make your name last forever. One of your descendants will sit on the throne forever. He'll be called the son of David. Someone who bears your family name. 
And these people, these enemies of David, are conspiring against him. When, is, when will he die and his name die with him? They don't care about God or what God has promised. I find the new English translation of verse 6 to be helpful here. It says, when someone comes to visit, he pretends to be friendly. He thinks of ways to defame me. And when he leaves, he slanders me. Now, even as David is confessing the sin of his own heart, his enemies are storing up more and more evil in theirs. Proverbs 26, verses 24 and 25 say, A hateful person disguises himself with his speech and harbors deceit within. And when he speaks graciously, don't believe him, for there are seven detestable things in his heart. And we know from the book of Revelation that the number seven represents completion. Proverbs is telling us that a hateful person's heart is full of nothing but evil. He stores it up more and more and more. While poor David lays helpless in his sickbed, his enemies are faking concern for him only to be in there to gather information on him and make secret plans about him so that they can finish him off where he lies in his bed. And again, verse 8 pulls us in close enough to hear what they're whispering. We've got we to lean in right here. Something awful has overwhelmed him and he won't rise again where he lies. You can almost hear the excitement in their muffled voices, can't you? They're practically circling him like vultures, sneering down at him while they eagerly hiss to one another, he's not going to recover from this illness. It's only a matter of time now. We can wait. Have you ever felt someone speak graciously to you, but then turn around and speak maliciously about you to others behind your back? You ever been the focus of someone else's hatred? Someone that you know has zero interest in your well-being and only wants to cause you pain and see you suffer. David's already in pain from his, the, his own sin and his sickness, and the deceitful and malicious conspiring of his enemies only adds insult to injury, but the real gut punch comes here in verse 9. Let's look at what he says. Even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. Now, when a person turns and walks away from you, what do you see if you look at his feet? You see his heels raising up against you, right? This wasn't an enemy who raised his heel against David. This wasn't the guy in verse 6 who came to visit him and pretended to care about him. This was a trusted friend who turned and walked away in betrayal. Betrayal. That's what's pictured here. It's possible that David is referring to one of his advisors named Ahithophel. There's not going to be a test on that later. Okay. Uh, but, but Ahithophel de defected to David's son Absalom and conspired with Absalom to remove David from the throne and make Absalom king. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 15 through 18. David doesn't give us specific details here, but we don't really need to know the specific details here because the point is that he was betrayed by someone who should never have betrayed him in the first place, right? It's no real shocker that one of his enemies came to visit him with a hidden agenda, is it? Even David in his weakened physical condition saw through that one, and, and none of us are buying that. But nobody expects to be double-crossed by a trusted friend, 
It's one thing to feel the physical and spiritual effects of your own sin. It's another thing to be hounded by those who hate you. But how do you recover from being deceived and abandoned by someone close to you? Someone that you have given your love to. Someone that you have trusted. Have you ever been betrayed by a friend or a loved one? Someone that you trusted? Where does this leave David? He's got nowhere else and no one else to turn to now but the Lord himself. He's got no choice but to trust in the Lord's provision and protection. And so we have to ask then, will the Lord betray him? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Let's look at verse 10. But you, Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up, and then I will repay them. Remember what David's enemies confidently assumed in verse 8? He won't rise again from where he lies, will he? What's David's plea here to God in verse 10? But you, Lord, be gracious, and what? Raise me up from where I lie. In other words, prove my enemies wrong, Lord. Don't let my sin be my downfall. Don't give me over to the desire of my enemies. Save me in the day of my adversity. Keep me and preserve me, Lord. Sustain me on my sickbed. Heal me in this bed where I lie, and then I will repay my enemies, including my friend who has betrayed me. Now, we need to know that David is not seeking personal vengeance here. The Bible's really clear on that for us that we are not to do that. But as God's anointed one, he serves as God's earthly representative of justice against all who do evil. And Psalm 2.2 reminds us that enemies of God's anointed one are, are enemies of God himself. David's crying out to God for help in the midst of his pain. He's overwhelmed by his problems. He knows that God alone is the solution. And in verses 11 and 12, David's petition for help gives way to assurance that the Lord indeed has not abandoned him and indeed will not abandon him. Let's read. By this I know. Those are great words. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy does not shout in triumph over me. You supported me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Listen, I hope you catch this in this psalm. All who hate David may whisper together about him as they plan to harm him, but none of David's enemies can shout in triumph over him. The Lord has supported him because of his integrity. Now, we know that David is not an innocent man. He already told us that, right? He confessed his own sin in verse 4. If you know anything about David's life, you know that he did some very sinful and evil things. He took another man's wife and he slept with her and then he had that man killed. And yet God himself called David a man after God's own heart. So integrity here doesn't mean morally perfect. It means consistent and faithful. David sinned against God and others many times, but he lived a life of ongoing confession and repentance like we see here in verse four. He is God's appointed king and the Lord supports his anointed one. 
David says, you set me in your presence forever. The sense here is that God set him upright and caused him to stand. Where is David right now? Laying down in his bed, sick. These are words of incredible confidence coming from a man who is bedridden while his enemies expect that he won't rise up from where he lies. David knows that even if he dies in that bed from his sickness, the Lord will raise him up from death, even death. David will be with God forever and he will not be forgotten on earth because the Lord delights in his anointed one. David knows that God will be faithful to keep his covenant promise. And here we are now almost 3,000 years removed talking about this king by name as if we're standing right there at his bedside with him. This is why David's suffering should matter to you and me. See, as we consider this poor man in his weak and helpless state, we're not just trying to imagine all that David went through. When we look at this man in this bed, we can't help but see our own selves laying there. Can we? See, we've been wearied by the debilitating effects of our own sin. We've heard the malicious whispers of those who seek our downfall. We've reeled from the wounds of someone that we trust. And in all of it, we have felt, if you're a follower of Christ in here, you have felt the healing salve of the Lord's grace. Because he kept his covenant promise to David. See, a thousand years after David died, another king was born. And this anointed one was the anointed one, capital A. He was called the son of David. He was called the son of God. He was called Jesus Christ. Jesus never had to confess any sin because he never sinned. He wasn't just a man of integrity. He was absolutely perfect. And during his earthly ministry, this perfect king was perfectly considerate of the poor. In fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord was on Jesus because the father had anointed him and sent him to preach the good news to the poor, the weak, the helpless, the needy, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, his blessing. But Jesus came to do more than heal people on their sickbeds, didn't he? That was just a glimpse of his heavenly kingdom that was breaking into a hellish world. Jesus, the anointed one, the Christ, came to give life to the dead. He came to heal our inner being by taking our sin upon himself and giving us his own righteousness in its place. As Jesus prepared to give his life in our place, he quoted Psalm 41 right here. While he ate bread in the upper room with the one who would betray him. Judas raised his heel against our Lord as he walked out of the room that night to go gather a mob of people who would arrest Jesus, give him an unfair trial, and then condemn him to be executed on a Roman cross. Jesus knows anguish. He knows pain. And he felt it on the cross. And as he hung on that cross, 
his enemies passed by and they spoke maliciously about him, eagerly waiting for him to die and be forgotten. And after Jesus died and was buried in his uh, tomb, his enemies thought he won't rise again from where he lies. But Jesus is the son in whom the father delights. His enemies would not shout in triumph over him because he triumphed over his enemies through his death and his resurrection. Because of Jesus' innocence, his heavenly father supported him by raising him up from the dead and seating Christ on the throne at his right hand forever. And this is how we now know that God delights in us. He's been gracious to us through the Son in whom he delights, his anointed one. We're saved by his grace through faith in his Christ. God was considerate of us in our helpless and needy state. And even though we were already dead in our trespasses and our sins, and we were already enemies of God because of God's great love for us, God made us alive with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us in the heavens in Christ Jesus. He has set us in his presence forever. Our enemy doesn't shout and triumph over us because our king triumphed over our enemy. All of them. Sin, death, Satan. And he's made us more than conquerors in him. Listen, if that does not tug your heart, I don't know what will. If that doesn't move you into worship of this anointed one, I don't know what will. Maybe the Lord is tugging at your heart right now because you haven't put your faith in this anointed one. What will you do with all of your anguish? Where will you take all all of your pain? Are you able to hold on to that? Surely you know how to lament. Surely you have lamented your pain, but are you lamenting to anyone who can do anything about it? It might be worth considering that perhaps the pain and the people in your life have left you nowhere to turn and no one to turn to besides the Lord himself. You've got no choice now but to trust in the Lord's provision and protection, and maybe you're asking, well, will he betray me too? And all of scripture resoundingly says, no, he will not. He will not betray you. Jesus promises that whoever comes to him in need of his rescue, he will not turn away. Why wouldn't you come? Why wouldn't you come? If you're overwhelmed by your problems, today is the day to know that God alone is the solution because he's given us his king, his anointed one. Not all your suffering is a direct consequence of your sin, but some of it might be. It's worth asking that. Even though you've been sinned against by others, we all have, if you have not been reconciled to God through Christ, then that is the problem that is forefront in your life right now. That is the one that you have to deal with in order to deal with everything else. And here's the the joy and the beauty of the gospel. You need only to recognize that your own sin has left you a poor 
and helpless enemy of God. And let that recognition drive you straight to Jesus. And King David has actually given you words to pray here this morning. Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me. Heal my inner being and raise me up for I have sinned against you. Don't turn away from the one who's considerate of the poor. Raise your heel against your sin and run to Jesus in faith. For those of us who have put our faith in Christ, we can confidently rest in the gospel promise that Jesus will repay all of our enemies because they're his enemies too. See, we don't have to spend our thoughts and our energy on seeking personal vengeance against those who've wronged us. Instead, we can remember that our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers of darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. And so now we're free in Christ to love our enemies on earth and pray that God would be gracious to them as well and heal them, not just physically, but spiritually. We can seek justice. We can love mercy. We can walk humbly with our God because his anointed one, King David, says, blessed is the one who is considerate of the poor. The Lord will save him in a day of adversity. And his anointed one, King Jesus, says, blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Are you poor in spirit? Book one of the Psalter ends with a weak king holding on to hope and a strong God. This psalm doesn't end with David's words, though. If you've been following along, you know we have one verse left. That last verse was most likely added in by these editors of the Psalter. It's a doxology that stirs God's people to praise the one who will not leave them in their lament, but will raise them up and set them in his presence forever. Have your heartstrings been tugged this morning by David's psalm? By this anointed one with a capital A? This Christ named Jesus? Then let these words of praise be yours too. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Let it be so. Let it be so. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it gives us this glorious picture of Jesus, your anointed one, your son, whom you sent to relieve us, to heal us, to fix our brokenness, to make us whole, to give us a a kingdom with him. Father, we're undeserving of all of it. And we rejoice in this Christ who now reigns on our behalf, and with whom we will reign forever and ever as you set us in his presence. Thank you. Praise be to your name. Amen.